Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, and to rejoice in what we read in the Scripture. For some, if this is their first rendering or reading through the Bible, already they have been shocked by what they read, shocked by the very people that they had always thought were heroes, only to discover that the people that you use are ordinary people, real people. People that by your grace alone were chosen, enabled, and used for your glory. And so, Father, we pray that as we study, we'd be encouraged to stay away from those examples that are obviously bad, but to be encouraged, Lord, that even though we fail, we're in good company as we read the Bible. I pray, Father, that you would deepen our understanding of the Word of God so that we might have a deeper understanding of the God of the Word and we would be conformed to the truth that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Joseph was a teenager, 17 years old, when the Lord began to speak to him through dreams. He was so excited about those dreams and probably a bit naive because he told his brothers about the dream since it involved them. Hey guys, the Lord spoke to me last night in a dream and and I dreamed that we were all like a bunch of sheaves out in the field and your sheaves rose up and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that cool? And they didn't think it was that cool. They hated him because of it. His dad was willing to dismiss it, but something got his attention. It was the next dream that the Lord gave him. It involved the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down and doing obeisance to Joseph's star. And at this, his dad, Jacob, gets a little miffed and says, What, you think your mother and I and all your brothers are going to bow down to you? And the answer to that would be, "Uh uh-huh, you will. For the Lord will take Joseph, though a 17-year-old boy now, and raise him up to become the second in command under Pharaoh of Egypt. He will be in charge of the food distribution for the entire world. And Jacob's brothers first, or uh, Joseph's brothers first, and then Jacob, his father himself last, will all be bowing down to this young man. But in chapter 37, we also saw that Joseph was sold by his brothers to some Midianite traders who were going down to Egypt. And then we started last week with chapter 38. And we saw that chapter 38 was 
like a contrast, a departure, a huge parenthetical statement in the story about Joseph. In reading chapter 37 and coming to chapter 38, we go, what's this all about? Because it seems not to fit. The story is all about Joseph, and then suddenly the camera shifts. And we're reading about Judah, his older brother. The camera does shift because while Joseph is down in Egypt, for about 20 years, chapter 38 takes place. It's about a 20-year span of time where we are able to see what's going on in the family of Jacob through his son Judah in particular to give us a contrast with what is happening with Joseph. Before we um, pick up where we left off, just a word to those who are younger. I say that, um, I think it's always um, uh, better to say younger than young because people would say, well, what does young mean? Just younger people. The Lord very often gets a hold of those who are young to do his work. Joseph was a young man. Okay, naive perhaps, impressionable, yes, but maybe better because of that. Because when a person is young and impressionable, then God is able to make an impression. At a tender age, when that person is responsive and receptive and not set in his or her ways. And I find this often as a pattern in the Bible, and I'm encouraged by it. That's why I always get excited when somebody young, I don't care how naive they might sound, says, I just want to serve the Lord and I believe God's going to use me to change the world. I say, great. How can I help? Samuel was just a kid, younger than Joseph, when the Lord spoke to him. He had that heart to serve the Lord. His mother and father had dedicated him to the Lord. And and when I say dedicated, I mean dedicated. They dropped him off at the tabernacle when he was just a tyke. And year by year, mom and dad would go up to the tabernacle and give little Samuel a little coat, priestly intern coat to wear. And it says that he ministered before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. Just a little kid. And the Lord spoke to him, Samuel, Samuel, in the middle of the night. And finally, he said, here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Then there was Jeremiah, the prophet. Before he was a prophet, he was a kid. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I'm going to use you to speak to the nations. And being a kid, Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm just a kid. That was his excuse. I'm too young. I'm, I'm, they're not going to listen to me. And God said, Jeremiah, quit saying I'm just a kid. I'm speaking to you. I will speak through you. Don't be afraid of the people's faces. Just go. Young. Impressionable. Daniel was a kid when taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, 605 B.C., just a teenager. But God used him so powerfully. Timothy was obviously young because Paul had to write and say, let no man despise your youth or your youthful age. 
When a person is young, as I mentioned, they're impressionable. And I say that's good because when God gets a hold of somebody in those tender years, that means that person is able to give the Lord the very best of their life before they've wasted their life or half of it on themselves. Once God gets a hold of a person at a young age, the rest of that person's life can be used for God's glory. Dwight L. Moody came home from a crusade one night, as the story goes, walked in the door, and his wife said, Well, how many came to the Lord tonight, sweetheart? He said, Two and a half. She said, Oh, you you mean two adults and a child? He goes, No, I mean two kids and one adult. (laughs) Because, he said, the adult has already wasted half of his life in the devil's kingdom, and now the rest of his life for the Lord. But these little kids, their whole life is ahead of them. It is shown that most people come to know the Lord when they're younger, in their teenage years. I'd be interested, and you might be interested, just to sort of see how this works. How many of you here tonight came to the Lord after age 25? Raise your hands. Okay, hands down. How many of you came to know Jesus Christ before age 25? Raise your hands. You can see exactly what I'm talking about. One person years ago released some statistics in trying to study this mathematically and said the odds of a person at age 25 coming to know Christ is 1 in 5,000. The odds of somebody at age 35 coming to know Christ is 1 in 25,000. At age 45, it's 1 in 60,000. At age 55, it's 1 in 125,000. And it exponentially decreases as the person gets older. So that if you come to know Christ at age 75, it's like a sheer miracle. It defies all odds. It doesn't matter what age you come to know the Lord. It's most important that you come to know Him. But Joseph, 17, and so tender, wanting to serve the Lord. You'll see it in this story tonight, if we ever get to the next chapter after chapter 38. (laughs) But as I mentioned, chapter 38 is here for two reasons. Number one, to give us a contrast. A contrast between Joseph, who's introduced in the previous chapter, and his story continues to the end. Contrast between Joseph and the rest of his family, his brothers, Judah especially. It's the difference between black and white, light and dark. Number two, not just for contrast, but to show us a continuance. A continuance. To give us the genealogical background to show the continuation of the lineage through Judah all the way to Jesus Christ. And that will show up at a couple of different places. One is at the end of the book of Ruth. The genealogical record is given of King David. And then those same names will appear in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogical table of Jesus Christ himself. So for the sake of contrast and for the sake of continuation, we have this story. Now I mentioned something just a few moments ago. If you're reading the Bible for the very first time, No doubt by now you're a bit stunned, in fact shocked 
if, if, if just reading through it, you discover, man, there's just a lot of junk in this book. Junk meaning sinfulness, wicked people. And yet, these are the people in the Bible. Judah, who will become the leader of the tribe of Judah. The kingly tribe from whom the Messiah will come. My goodness, this guy was a loser. He made bad choices. Just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Bible shows plainly their failures. So you might be shocked on one hand, and I would say, great if you are. Because if you have the idea that everybody in the Bible woke up every morning and polished his or her halo before they started the day and then lived the perfect life, you would be mistaken. These are real people. And some of them are real bad. Joseph wasn't. He is the contrast to the rest. Not one bad thing is ever said of Joseph in the Bible. The only other human being that that's true of is Daniel. Doesn't mean he was perfect, doesn't mean he was sinless, it's just that there's nothing notable like there is with the other people. Well, we attempted to go through chapter 38 and ended at an odd place. And so we'll pick it up at the same odd place. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Now let me give you the background so we don't have to read it all again. Judah was out one day and he saw this gal. Cute, he thought. She was Canaanite. It was his Canaanite cutie. Her name was Shua. So he married his Canaanite cutie, and they had three boys. One was named Ur, E-R. The other was named Onan, and the other was named Shelah, or as we should pronounce it, Shelah, because no boy wants it pronounced Shelah. So these three boys, my three sons, they had. Now, the first one died, and we're not told why. It simply says, in verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. We saw that last week. doesn't say why the Lord killed him. I kind of like that. God isn't a gossip. He just says, killed him. Got my reasons. He's dead. Move on. And Judah said to Onan, this is son number two, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went in to his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now in reading this, some have misinterpreted this to mean, or have taken this to mean, misapplied this, to refer to birth control. Showing, they think, that any form of family planning, birth control, must be unbiblical because of this. Well, that is so foreign to the meaning of the context. The issue here isn't family planning. The issue here is family plotting. 
You've got a boy who marries his brother's wife, which was a custom that started in Mesopotamia, was practiced in Asia and Africa, and even later on made its way into the Mosaic law of ancient Israel. So that the inheritance of a family and the name of a family would be preserved. The brother would go have a child. The child would be named after the dead brother and the family name and the inheritance would live on. So what's up with Onan? Well, notice the word when in that verse. When he went in, a better translation would be whenever he went in. The idea is that he did it frequently. It was a regular practice. And the regular practice for him would fall under the medical term coitus interruptus. That is, He wanted sexual gratification without parental responsibility. He hated his brother. He didn't want to give a seed in his brother's name. He didn't want his brother to have an heir because his brother, the firstborn, would pass on the family birthright to the son that he would produce. He wants to produce the heir. He wants the right of the firstborn. He wants to be in charge. If he has an heir, he'll be rich Er and better, because he is Er, by the way. So everything's going to be just more than him. So he doesn't want to pass on the genealogy of his brother because he's filled with self-love instead of brotherly love. And so we notice that the Lord kills him. The thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So now watch this. Two of Judah's sons are dead. It doesn't say anything about him mourning, though I'm sure he was sorrowful for it. I can't prove that, though. But notice now in verse 11, he's, he's, got, like, he's got a heads up now for this gal. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow. In your father's house until my son-in-law Shelah is grown. He was young. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So here's the deal. He said, you know, sweetheart, just go home and live with your dad. Now he's thinking in his mind, no way is he going to get my third, she going to get my third son. Because there's two down, there's only one to go. Number one died with her. Number two died with her. Maybe he didn't know the whole situation at the time. If number three gets married to her, that could be the end of my family line. So just go home and live with dad. But he uses as an excuse, well, when my son gets older, then, then that's another story. He had no intention of fulfilling that vow. Now, it says, Tamar went down and dwelt in her father's house. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. That is, he went through the process of grieving and coming out the other end comforted after that. And so he went up to his sheep, up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, and his friend Hira the Adulamite. We remember him at the beginning of the chapter, his pagan friend, the Adulamite. He goes, you know what? My wife's dead. It was a tough go. I feel better now. I'm going to go visit my pagan friend, 
the Adulamite, Hira. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. That's how she dressed. She disguised herself. She took off the mourning garments that she had been wearing because she had covered her face. It seems that she dressed as if she were a temple prostitute knowing the kind of character that her father-in-law had. Now, a temple prostitute, as I'll mention just in a few verses, was uh, a, a common Canaanite form of worship. The way that many of the Canaanite temples got converts was through their prostitutes. So it, it was said to worship. You would be a worshiper if you joined yourself to a prostitute. Well, young men who are out in the fields are thinking, boy, I, I like this church. You know, I'll join that one. Sure, no problem. And they got a lot of their converts that way through these gals. She, she covered her face. Verse 16, Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you. In other words, I seek your sexual favors. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And so she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? So here she is dressed up. Her intention is to maintain the family inheritance. She's thinking, I'll be out of this family. I have no children. So to keep the lineage of that family, she disguises herself so that Judah himself will impregnate her. It's warped, I know, but follow the story. So she says, what do you give me? You know, you're asking for this favor. What will you give me? How much will you give me? He says, I'll send you a goat. From the flock. And so she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? So she's going to get his goat, but (laughs) until she does, she doesn't want the wool pulled over her eyes. So they strike a deal. I'll give you a goat. Okay, great. Well, you don't have a goat with you. You're here, but... What will you give me as a promise until I get your goat? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And so she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. And then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. A signet is a ring. And the ring was used to stamp within wax or clay. Let's say you were to buy something and you wanted to give your signature, so to speak. You would take your ring and you would impress it in wax or you'd impress it in clay. And that was used for letter correspondence. That was used for transactions. And the ring, that signet, was often worn around the neck with a cord. So he takes the ring off which is on the cord, gives it to her and the staff that is in her hand. So it's sort of like giving his credit card, his visa card to her. What shall I give you? Do you, you know, I don't have any cash. Do you take visa? Well, no. Uh, um, tell you what, 
give me your signet because really that is effectively like your personal credit card, your signature, your ability to buy. So he goes, good, no problem, gives it to her. And she conceives. Verse 19, so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Okay, so, so, so let me just fill in this blank. We're dealing with a Canaanite culture. And the Canaanite culture has many of its worship practices from the Mesopotamians, where, uh, Mesopotamians, where Abraham came from. And uh, over there, the whole idea of temple cult prostitutes developed, and they were all about fertility. So this is how it worked. The idea was that the prostitute was emblematic of the goddess Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. She represented Ishtar. And so before somebody would plant their fields with seed or have their flocks mate, before that time they would often go to these temples and seek the woman, the prostitute, who would be emblematic of Ishtar. And the idea was the recreation of the divine marriage of the gods. And with that, it was believed that one's livestock, crops, would come out in abundance. And so it was common to see these cult prostitutes scattered throughout the land. But notice, we're dealing with Judah. The... um, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Different worldview, different God called out from that stuff. And yet Judah looks so much like the Canaanites in his practice. In his marriage to Shua the Canaanite. In his false worship, utilizing prostitution. So he's become very much like them. So, anyway, he's going to keep his end of the bargain. Look for the gal to give his goat to. And so verse 21, he asked the men of that place saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? They said, there was no harlot in this place. We don't know what you're talking about. We can't remember any harlot. So he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also, the men of that place said there was no harlot in that place. And then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat and you haven't found her. I'll let her just keep it. I, it doesn't need to be exchanged at this point. I don't want to make it public because of the shame that will happen. It came to pass about three months after that. Now watch how the chickens come home to roost. That Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is pregnant. She's with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out. And let her be burned. Wow. It's amazing how bad our sin looks on someone else. It's amazing, this guy. He's the guy that gets her pregnant. And then somebody says, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. I can't believe it. Burn her. Burn her? You turkey. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of somebody else who saw his sin on somebody else named David. David gets a girl pregnant that he lusts after, kills her husband. Nathan the prophet 
finds out about it and goes to King David and goes, David, I've got a problem. Well, what is it? I can solve problems. Well, there were two men that lived in one city. One was rich and one was poor. David's going, yeah, okay, go on. Well, the rich man owned exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man only owned one small little lamb, a ewe lamb. This cuddly, sweet little lamb that was a family pet. In fact, this lamb slept in his bed, drank from his cup, and ate of his own food. It was like a daughter to him. Well, that's interesting. Well, so what's the story? Nathan goes, okay, so this is what happened. The rich guy had a friend come and visit him. And instead of taking one of his many flocks and killing it and preparing it for a meal, he finds that one little ewe lamb that that one poor man in that town owned, stole it, killed it, and prepared it as a meal. Now David gets totally bummed out, livid, angry, incensed, and he said, that man will surely die over a lamb. He's going to die. Kill him. And then Nathan points his prophetic finger at David and says, you are that man. Thus saith the Lord, David, God has given you so much. He's given you wives. He's given you a kingdom. And if that weren't enough, he'd given you so much more. But you sinned against the Lord in taking the wife of another man like that you lamb when you had so much and so many others and you took that man's wife and you killed that man. And then finally David fessed up. But boy, did his sin look bad on somebody else in that little story that Nathan told him. And so here with Judah, his sin looks really bad on his daughter-in-law. Well, notice what happens. Verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these belong, I'm with child. And she said, please determine whose they are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. (laughs) Burn her. And so she comes before him, you know, obviously, I guess, to get her sentence, I guess, her burning. And so she goes, you know, before you sentence me to death, just you ought to know that The father of this child is the one who owns this stuff. Maybe you can figure out whose ring this is. You know, this one with the big honking J on it. (laughs) Shows it to him, Judah. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I. What a statement. Because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, And he never knew her again. And it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth, the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, breach or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. 
So here's the story of Judah and his family and his sinful legacy. Marries the Canaanite cutie, has three boys, two of them die. He gets a harlot pregnant, which happens to be his daughter-in-law. And with every turn of the phrase, he becomes more and more like the Canaanites around him rather than different from them, not standing out from them like Joseph did, but like them. Socially and spiritually compromised, syncretistic, taking on the form of the culture around it. In contrast to that, we have Joseph, where his story resumes in the very next chapter. Now, before we get into that chapter, I mentioned the genealogy of Jesus Christ and Judah being in it. It probably is good to briefly look, or I'll read to you, just a few verses in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we have a genealogy. That's how Matthew opens. Why? Because to the Jew, genealogies were high priority. Especially if you're dealing with a Messiah. You better prove the Messiah's pedigree goes all the way back, not just to Abraham, but to King David himself. And so the genealogy is given. But notice the listing. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. So we have in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Son of God, Someone who is born by incestual birth, incestual relations within a family, and it's recorded in the genealogy of Christ. Ram begot Abinadab, Abinadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David the king. Now you have, interestingly enough, in a Jewish genealogy, not just this illegitimate birth, but you have women named. Very taboo for Jewish genealogies. Women had no legal rights. They were kept out of genealogical records. In fact, a prayer was discovered in ancient literature prayed by some narrow-minded ancient Jewish people, Jewish men who would wake up And part of their morning prayer regiment was, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. But notice the kind of people that are in the genealogical record of Christ. It's as if somebody scoured through the Old Testament to find the most unlikely people and said, let's put them in there. Of course, it was God, the Holy Spirit, orchestrating it all. Here's my point. If you think that because you have failed, and maybe you have, we all have, and you think, boy, I've squandered my life, boy, I've wasted my life, boy, boy, I've made bad decisions, it's good that you're honest, it's good that you confess it, but can I just say that you are probably in good company? The Bible's filled with characters like that, that God graciously got a hold of and used, sometimes in spite of who they were. They're in the genealogical record of Christ. And that's the importance of chapter 38 of Genesis. Now to chapter 39. Back to the story of Joseph in Egypt. Okay. 
while chapter 38 is going on, chapter 39 is going on in Egypt. Now, now, by reading chapter 38, we have years going by, and Joseph isn't around. And so during that time, during this chapter, 38, you're wondering, so what's going on with Joe? What's the Lord doing in Joseph's life? Here's the short answer. What the Lord is doing in Joseph's life is developing Joseph's faith. Joseph had faith. He trusted in the Lord. But remember, he was quite naive. He had faith in God, but in its very nascent, primitive, beginning stages. Like a seed, it needed to grow. And the way often the Lord develops our faith, you're not going to like this, is by pain. Pain. If somebody, if your boss gives you a raise tomorrow and makes you the vice president of the company, your response is probably going to be, thank you, Lord. Lord, I just want you to know I love you and I sure trust you. If tomorrow, however, your boss says, we don't need you, we're cutting back on salaries, you're laid off. I wonder if your response is going to be, Lord, thank you. Lord, I sure do love you and you know I trust you. No, your faith is really on trial at that moment. Do you really believe God despite the circumstances or do you only trust God when life is good? 17-year-old boy who loves God intently now needs to go through some development. His faith needs to get deeper. And that comes by pain. Somebody once said, a Christian is like a tea bag. He's not worth much unless he's been through some hot water. And so now you're seeing the hot water that Joseph is immersed in in chapter 39. And it's a contrast, as I said, to chapter 38. Chapter 38 highlights the wretched morality of Judah. Chapter 39 highlights the rock-solid integrity of Joseph, his younger brother. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Joseph sold as a slave, bought by a slave owner named Potiphar. God blesses him. He's successful. He does his job, obviously with all of his heart, obviously not complaining, obviously with joy, because everything he does, people notice, boy, God, it seems like there's something different about him. And they discover after he testifies, oh, it's the Lord that he believes in that is blessing him and prospering him. You know, I wonder if I had an experience like Joseph, I'm taken down as a slave to Egypt through no fault of my own. I wonder if my response wouldn't be, and I bet it would be something like this. This is a bummer. This is the devil. The devil's trying to ruin my life. Or how could God allow this to happen? Or God, what's up? I've got so much talent. It's so wasted here. 
Why would you allow my talent, my, my creativity to be wasted here? I wonder if that would be my response or if. I would say, like Joseph obviously said, okay, I'm a slave in Egypt. So I'm going to be the very best slave that Egypt has ever seen. They ain't seen no slave like me. (laughs) And he gave his heart to it. I want to make this point. Wherever you find yourself tonight, you could chafe against it and you could focus on your vulnerability or you could focus on God's sovereignty. And you could look at the task, look at the place you are in life and say, I am going to take this as the will of God and I'm going to do what I do to my very best. Oh, but skip. You don't know. All I do is I push a broom where I work. I couldn't get a job doing anything else, so they hired me as the janitor. I just push a broom all day. Then why not say, I'm going to be the best broom pusher this company has ever seen? How about that? Joseph, a slave, God was with him. He was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And then he made him, we don't know how long a time this is, but eventually he, Potiphar, made him, Joseph, overseer of his house. And all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was, from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, because Joseph was in it. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in the field. So Joseph has like the Midas touch. Whatever he does, whatever he touches... The Lord touches. And when the Lord touches it, it's blessed. Not only does he have that Midas touch, but he has the determination to be faithful and to give a faithful testimony to the glory of God where he's at. It's amazing. Faithful testimony. Whatever he does is successful, and he wants God to get the glory. Now, if you live like that, You can expect a friendly visit from your friendly neighborhood tempter, the devil. If you live like that with this kind of integrity and that kind of desire to see God glorified, don't you think you're going to raise the interest and the ire of your adversary, the devil? Do you think the devil and all of his minions would look at a life dedicated to Christ, sold out to Christ and go, oh, how nice. Let's give him a standing ovation, hell. Come on, demons, clap for that young man. No, devising a scheme with which to get a hold of him. He's young, he's single, he's good-looking. Hmm. And so something crafted just for that is coming his way. If you think about it, so far, Joseph was successful. I just want to sort of like C.S. Lewis enter into the mind of Satan for a moment like he did in his book, Screwtape Letters. It probably went something like this. Okay, Joseph, you did pretty good. You passed the temptation of bitterness that you could have been toward your brothers. You didn't get bitter toward them when they sold you as a slave. Um, You passed the test of discouragement. You didn't get discouraged. You just sort of dug your, 
your, your, your whole self into your job and God touched it and you became successful, great. You passed those tests. But I'm not done with you yet. I've got something that's going to come from out of nowhere. It's going to get your attention. Now you have to know that the enemy of your soul, the devil and demons, have studied you. They know you. They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. They know when you're vulnerable. They know what things might be in your path that would trip you up. You have to be ready for that. It comes with the territory. There's this haunting scripture in the Gospel of Luke, the temptation of Jesus. You know the story. And it says, When Satan was done tempting Jesus, that he left him until he had an opportune time. It's a haunting verse. You might leave a temptation and go, Man, I was great. I did really good. I withstood the attack of the enemy. He's waiting for the right time, the opportune time. Now let's watch what happens with with Joseph. Verse 6, He left all that he had in Joseph's hand. This is interesting. And he did not know what he had, except for the bread which he ate. He trusted Joseph, in other words, so much, he didn't even know what was in the bank account. He didn't know about the profit from his business dealings. He left everything to Joseph. He was that good. Over time, he just studied this young man and thought, this guy's faithful, he's loyal, he's trustworthy. You know, I'm giving it all to him. So he didn't even know what was going on, except, I got food. The bread that was right in front of him, his own meal, that's all he knew. Now it says, the end of the... Verse, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Hmm. Young man, good-looking, single, in pagan territory where there's no other believers around to see what he's up to. Hmm, I wonder what he'll do. Well, let's see. It came to pass, after these things, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. So evidently Potiphar was not the only one impressed with Joseph. Mrs. Potiphar was as well, but for different reasons. Now notice how subtle she is. And she said to Joseph, lie with me. Just sort of so subtle, huh? Talk about a come on. Come to bed with me. We're not told what's up. What's up with Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar? Is this the typical Potiphar's busy, gives no attention to his wife, his wife's jealous? Or could it be that in that culture in Egypt, he was familiar with other women and so in revenge she's trying to get back? We're not told. But she is a desperate housewife. (laughs) And she's got her eyes fixed on a young man named Joseph. Verse 8, but he refused. Notice that, he refused. He said no. He said no way. He refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I. 
nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. Number one, let me tell you what Joseph did to counteract this temptation. Number one, ethical conviction. Ethical conviction. You see, what he's saying is, look, your master, your husband, my, my boss, trust me. He's given everything into my hands. He's given me his trust. I will not betray his trust. Do you realize that you have people in your life that are trusting you not to succumb to temptation? They put their trust in you. Your spouse has entrusted you not to fall to temptation. Your children have trusted that you'll be loyal to your vows. Your family, your friends, the body of Christ, all trusting like Joseph knows that his own master Potiphar trusts him. Ethical conviction. But notice what else he says. How then, verse 9, the end of verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is number two way he fought it. Not just ethical conviction, spiritual devotion. He's devoted to God. Notice he doesn't say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against you, Mrs. Potiphar? Or how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Mr. Potiphar? More than them, more than her, was God. The greatest consideration in Joseph's life, it's called in the Bible the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Have you heard that term? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The idea. What does that mean, the fear of the Lord? It means an awesome reverence for God. It's an awareness of the thereness of God. I know God is here. I know God is there. I know God is watching. And that was what motivated Joseph when No one else was looking. He had no believers. He had no uh, godly people who saw what he was. This is Paganville. He could do what he wanted. No one was in the house. Nobody saw this, just her and him. But he knew that God saw. Do you remember the story when Moses killed that Egyptian? We'll get to it in the book of Exodus. I say, do you remember it? I'm taking for granted that you've already read that story in the Bible. When Joseph was going to kill the Egyptian, the Bible says he looked this way and he looked that way. His problem is he didn't look that way. He only looked this way and that way, looking for what on the horizontal level could be watching him, not knowing God is watching always. Joseph knew that. That was this young man's conviction, spiritual devotion, fear of the Lord. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Verse 10, so it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Tip number three in Joseph's victory, continual Let's call it continual refutation so we we, we can stick with the rhyming. He refused every day. Every day she came on to him. Every day, continually, he said no, 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 no. It became the pattern of his life to say no. How about if you start looking at your life 
like a city, like an ancient city that has walls around it and gates. The walls protect invaders. The gates let people in and out. If you don't want garbage in the city, you close the gate. If you don't want bad stuff in the city or bad people, you close the gate. Well, let's say you're looking out down the road and you see a beat-up old jalopy, a truck coming at you. I'm modernizing it a little bit. And it's billowing smoke and it's highly a pollutant vehicle and it's coming right toward the the city gate. You, You don't want the pollution in, so what do you do? What do you do? You close the gate. These here, the eyes, these are the gates of the city. These ears, these are the gates of the city. You and I let in aural and visual stimuli every single day. And we live in a filthy world, seeking to pour into you all of its pollution and all of its filth. You need to, I need to, Learn to close the gates. Learn to go. Don't want to see that. Don't want to hear that. Don't want to be here. Every day, lie with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. No. 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 A continual pattern. And not only to lie with her, did you notice the end of verse 10? Or to be with her. I'm not going to even be around her. There's a secret. Not going to be around her. He didn't say, you know, Mrs. Potiphar, let's just have coffee sometime, you and I, and I really want to minister to you. I want to find out why you have this angst against your husband and love for other men. Maybe I can forget you. I don't want to be around you. Get away from me. And yet how many people that get Involved in affairs, sort of, oh, well, it's just, I can't just cut it off. I want to, that would be a bad witness. A bad witness. What have you been doing the last few months? Cut it off. Say no. Don't even be with that person. Martin Luther once said, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. That's what he was doing. He just kept saying no. Verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men were in the house inside that she caught him by his garment and said, it's always this garment with Joseph, isn't it? (laughs) You know, it was the garment before, the multicolored garment of speciality. Now he's got this Egyptian garment. She grabs the garment and she says, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside, or you might say he streaked outside. (laughs) Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he grab his coat? Better to lose your garment than to lose your character. I'm out of here. Boom. Took off in the other direction. Ran away. If you're going to walk with the Lord, we need to learn to walk toward God on a daily basis. Always walk toward Him. Always seek His Word, His Spirit, His will. Walk toward God and walk away from Godlessness. And that means influences that are Godless as well. So it was when she saw that He had left His garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, See, 
He has brought to us this Hebrew to mock us. He came to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his, until his master Potiphar came home. And she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us, and came in, he came into me to mock me. And so it happened. I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So she concocts a story that Joseph was the one that came on to her and tried to rape her. She was a big, fat liar, to put it mildly. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Who was it aroused at? I'm not so sure it was aroused at Joseph. Because you'll notice in the next verse, Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. In ancient Egypt, an attempted rape was punishable by death. It was a capital offense. And somebody like Potiphar, with that kind of a position, would no doubt have brought Joseph to immediately be executed if he believed Joseph really did this. I'm not so sure his anger is aroused at Joseph. I think his anger is aroused. The Bible says it's aroused. It doesn't say at whom or at what. I think he's angry because he knows his wife's character. He also knows Joseph's character. He knows that the Lord has blessed him personally because of Joseph. And he knows he has to get rid of this guy now and put him in the prison. He's mad. But I think he's mad at her because of her character. But the Lord. Aren't you glad you have those phrases scattered throughout the Bible? But the Lord. If you could read a story of your life, I wonder what you'd read. So-and-so got fired today, but the Lord. Something bad happened to that person, but the Lord. That's Joseph's life. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all that the prisoner, all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. So there again, like in Potiphar's house, He's faithful. He's loyal. He's not moping around. How come I'm in jail? This place stinks. God's with him. And he's thinking, okay, I guess God wants me to have a prison ministry. (laughs) Because I'm in prison. Again, instead of focusing on human vulnerability, why did this happen to me? He's focused on divine sovereignty. Hmm. I could minister right here. In jail. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. What a journey Joseph is on. From his parents to the pit, to Potiphar, to the prison, and next to the palace. And every place his weird journey takes him, The Lord is with him. 
Let me encourage you tonight to do two things. Summed up by one word. Run. Run for your life. Run from sin. Run to the Savior. Run away from those things, those people that are dragging you away from God. Cut them off. Run from them. And run to the Savior. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, pick it up sometime. Read the book that Charles Spurgeon said he read twice a year. In that story, the chief character named Christian is leaving his town, the city of destruction. He sees it smoldering behind him. He goes through a very narrow gate to go escape. And as he's escaping through the narrow gate, and he hears people crying in the background, and they're trying to drag him back in, finally he stuffs his fingers in his ears so he can't hear what's behind him. He can't hear the people, and he cries out. You know how you go, He cries out, Life! Life! Eternal life! Eternal life! And he runs through the narrow gate toward the celestial city. A great way to live. Put your fingers in your ears. Life, life, eternal life, eternal life. Run for your life. Run from sin. Run to the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a contrast we've seen between Judah and Joseph. Two brothers from the same family. One living in darkness of the culture of his day and age. One who rose above it, living under the godly kingdom culture. That was not apparent in his day, but only in his life and in his heart. Because like Daniel as a young man, he purposed in his heart that he wouldn't compromise. And wherever Joseph was, with that attitude, with that temerity, and that loyalty and faithfulness, you prospered him. What a great example. Heavenly Father, I pray that like Joseph who fled that day, No matter what it costs us, I pray we would flee, running away from sin and running to the Savior. Lord, for some people, that means um, they're going to have to make some crucial decisions this week about places they go or things they watch or listen to. For others, it means cutting off a relationship that they're involved in that just isn't healthy. For still others, it means... For the first time, dedicating their life to Jesus Christ and running to you for salvation, maybe for the very first time. Tonight, I want to address those who may have come to this service, who may have just come, but you've never come personally to Christ. You can't remember a time when you have personally surrendered your life over to Jesus Christ and asked him to come into your life as Savior and Lord. Tonight, I want to give you the opportunity to do exactly that. But there could be, secondly, some who maybe once made some spiritual decision in the past, some commitment of some kind. Whatever that was and whenever that was, the fact remains, you are not walking with the Lord tonight. You're you're at a distance from Him. You're not running to him. You find yourself sort of running away, even if it's slightly. 
You're not walking with Him. I encourage you to run back to Him tonight. Whether for the very first time or if this is a recommitment of your life, I want you to give your life to Christ tonight. And if you are willing to do that as we're closing this service now, I want you to raise your hand up in the air so that I can see your hand. Raise your hand up. And you're saying, I'm going to give my life to Christ tonight or rededicate. God bless you in the front. Anyone else? Right there on the side. One, two, three. On my left. Four. Anybody else? Raise it up high so I can see. To my right. Right up here toward the front in the middle. On my far right. God bless you. Anybody else? In the balcony. Yep. Right there in the aisle. I see your hand. Anybody else? Right up in the front. Again, second row in the front. Father in heaven, I pray, we pray for those who are with us that have raised those hands, come from different backgrounds, there's different reasons behind those hands. But Lord, that indicates a desire to get right with you, to come to you or to come back to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way anybody can come to you. As Jesus said, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. As these make that decision to come to you or to come back to you, I pray, Father, that you'd fill them with a new sense of confidence, a new sense of joy, a new sense of purpose, knowing that they're forgiven, that they're right with you, not because of what they've done, but in spite of who they are and what they've done, because of what Jesus has done for them. Oh, Lord, put that peace of mind and heart deep within them that it would carry them through the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, shall we? I'm going to ask you, um, as we sing this final song, if you raised your hand to do one other thing, that is to get up from where you're standing, whether you're in the back, balcony, side, middle, front, find the nearest aisle, Walk up to the very front, the bottom of this platform here, and let me lead you in a word of prayer. Our counselors will be up here, but you come right now, and by coming you're indicating, I'm going to give my life totally over to Christ tonight. Jesus called people publicly like this so often. And tonight He's calling you to come. If you raise your hand, you come. Even if you didn't raise your hand, but you want to receive Christ, you come tonight. If you're in the balcony, we'll wait for you. If you're in the family room, come through the doors. If you're in the middle of an aisle, just say, excuse me, I'm coming through. Anybody else? Anybody else? Come right now. Come right now. We don't even have to sing a song. You just come right now. Make your way up. This is your night. You have an appointment with God. Keep it right now. Come forward. I do want you to know 
that I do this publicly not to embarrass anyone or have everybody look at you. They go, why are they clapping? What's the deal here? Jesus so often called people publicly. And, you know, they're just something happens inside of you when you decide to make a break once and for all and make a public commitment and a stand for Christ. There's something that just sort of gels and confirms inside your own life. And so um, Jesus called people publicly, and we're calling you up forward. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer out loud. I'd like you to pray that prayer out loud after me from your heart to the Lord. You say this from your heart with everything in you. You say this to the Lord. This is you asking Jesus to come in tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus died. That he shed his blood for my sin. That he rose again from the dead. I turn from my sin. I leave it behind. I take you as my Savior. I want to follow you as my Lord. From this day forward. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.